Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Upside Swings podcast, the podcast with the highest ceiling. I'm your host, Bryce Hendricks, joined, as always, by Stone Hansen and Ryan Davis. Stone, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Uh, just finishing up uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, so it's pretty exciting. But uh, yeah, pretty good just watching prospects and stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't, di- I haven't started that yet. My girlfriend's always, it's always an uphill battle to get her to watch anything with superheroes i got her to watch wandavision and that was like my quota for the next three months so like i gotta wait until it's all over and then i'll just binge it at some point oh, i'm good finally enjoying a day off work it's been pretty crazy so can't complain right now yeah yeah well today we got a an interesting podcast for you it's going to be a little different than the first two uh instead of talking about prospects we're going to talk about some of the philosophy we each have for the draft because that really changes a lot of the of of the landscape of how you're going to view prospects and how your big boards are going to look at the end of the season and stuff like that so we just have a couple of topics we're going to touch on and we're all going to give some opinions and there might be some disagreements and uh we're just gonna have some fun with it so stone do you want to introduce the first topic and uh and what you're thinking yeah, so I think uh, the first thing that we wanted to touch on was um, like archetype replaceability uh, and how that factors in for us when evaluating prospects. Um, I think there's, you guys can chime in too if there's any others that, that you can think of, but I think probably the three easiest archetypes um, that are replaceable are like backup guards, uh, specifically like point guards more, uh, backup like like centers or rim runners uh, and three-point specialists just from my viewpoint. I don't know if you guys have any others uh, that come to mind, but those three in specific for me are kind of ones that I don't necessarily devalue in a draft. It's just that uh, I may not value them as much as others because I know how replaceable they might be uh, like either in the free agent market or getting a cheap trade or something like that. Yeah. I have a couple that come to mind that are, that are, similarly replaceable to me and those are like your rebounding backup bigs or uh you know your occasional post scores um bigs like that and then like kind of microwave bench scores uh like low field bench scores i think are are fairly replaceable there's a couple of those in every draft um and even the ones that don't really hit in the nba probably could they just don't get in the the right situation to hit in the nba yeah for sure how about you Ren? Yeah, I agree. Definitely those three there. Um, I would also just say like the traditional big in, in general, just like, you know, the back to the basket post up um, type big man. Now they're kind of easy to replace and really not maybe not easy to replace with those same type of architects, but they're easy to replace with the bigger uh, centers that are like point forwards or could handle the ball or shoot. So I would definitely say say that as well that archetype as well yeah so go ahead Stone. i was gonna say just for me um uh just not to like nitpick at specific guys in this draft but um that's what i'm gonna do (laughs) is uh (laughs) so like i think there's you know maybe someone like luca garza for example some some people that you know may see his college production and think like wow he's you know, probably something special in the NBA. His role in the NBA is probably uh, as a post-up scorer, a traditional big. He can stretch it out, and if you draft him, I suppose that's kind of what you're hoping for. Uh, but just in that general sense of backup bigs and things of that nature, it's like, how do you – is there any instance – I guess the better question here for me, for you guys, is is there any instance where any of those archetypes are worth drafting high for you? uh honestly no i i'm like low on bigs to a fault uh i almost never recommend drafting a big because i think some great ones are always undrafted i just think of this this last year uh nathan knight and freddie gillespie both went undrafted and those were two guys i like better than say a vernon Carey or 
maybe even Nick Richards, though I kind of like Nick Richards. Um, I just don't see the value in drafting a big that's just going to back up because there's a lot of seven-footers who can rebound and dunk everywhere. Um, Garza could be a little different because that stretch ability is kind of interesting. Yeah, um, I think maybe a better example might be like Charles B- uh, Bassey or someone like that. that that's who I was going to bring up. Yeah, yeah. Bassey is someone that I'm I'm pretty low on because I just don't I just don't see what he does at a starter level. And even if he's a solid backup big, you know, what's that really worth if you can sign that guy for a minimum? Yeah. So I I think that's kind of a good transition where uh, you said that there's, you wouldn't really recommend taking bigs high. Um, But that kind of brings us to, there are instances where those archetypes kind of, especially nowadays overlap into other archetypes um, where you see guys, who are, I guess you would say, big men like Evan Mobley or maybe Kai Jones that are in no way the traditional sense of big man, where they possess skills that, uh, you know, traditional big men don't at all, where they can space the floor. Uh, They have a really good feel for passing. Um, In Evan Mobley's case, he's a really fast processor of the game. Um, So I think uh, there's, there's a difference between bigs in general and then bigs with more obscure archetypes that don't come around very often yeah i definitely agree with that uh i don't think you would really want to take a chance on either on any traditional big high uh maybe like second round or undrafted um because like bryce and, and stone were saying they're pretty easy to to find and and replace uh i did see talking about bassy i did see a mock the other day where bassy went to the nets in like the second round which i thought would have been a pretty good fit just because he's he's a he's a good uh shot blocker has a long wingspan but other than that and that's that's a late pick too but other than that uh i don't like the traditional bigs at all would prefer to take a guy like you know, Kristaps, Przingis, or you know, a guy, a guy in that build, that that kind of unicorn or, or point point center build. I will say the one the one uh, separator for bigs that's that's admittedly very hard for for me as an evaluator is separating like traditional rim runners from really special defensive prospects, and the guy for me that fits this the most in this draft is. Uh, Ibu Gianco Baji, who is really skinny, uh, and he like he projects as sort of this like maybe like, at best Capella esque uh, rim runner, but he has a lot of little defensive skills I like. He has really fluid hips, and he does a good job like getting chased down blocks. And for me, it's it's hard to separate like him from like an Isaiah Jackson or someone like that, who I think is probably just a rim runner. Uh, how, how do you guys go about trying to figure out elite defensive value and the difference that makes in a big being a, like a legit first round prospect versus one of these replaceable archetypes we're talking about? I think the biggest differentiator for me is switchability. Um, a lot of rim runners tend uh, to be like shot blocking specialists or guys who are weak side rim helper, uh, maybe like a Hassan Whiteside or someone like that kind of comes to mind. Uh, where are there where there are some bigs that are great at switches, um, defending in the pick and roll, can uh, go out to the perimeter at times. Someone like Nick Claxton, who is a bit more mobile, um, you know. So I think, I think switchability is probably the biggest uh, differentiator in terms of uh, trying to pin down whether they're just that rim running uh, shot blocking specialist or there's more nuances to their defensive game. Yeah. I think that's what separated someone like uh, for me personally, like Anyeka Okongwu last year from James Wiseman, I had Okongwu top six and I had Wiseman uh, the late teens because I kind of thought that at his highest level, Okongwu could be a, a switching big uh, in a way I just didn't see with Wiseman, but he also can play a more traditional protect the paint role. Um, 
So, so I think stuff like that is what helps. Uh, and I think that's also, you know, Mobley has a lot more skills, but I think that's what makes Mobley so special is his, he's an elite defensive prospect, uh, prospect because he is an excellent processor and he has the tools to make it work. Uh, he has the fallback of just being an elite rim runner. Like that's his absolute lowest outcome is that he can catch lobs and protect the rim and switch. Yeah. And as a lowest outcome, that's that's pretty valuable. So that's what makes that's what makes him so special as a big at the top of this draft. But other than that, this is for me a very sparse draft for bigs. What other bigs do you guys have within like the first round this year? Uh, I mean, I think Sengun is probably uh, top 20 for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Maybe outside of that, though, honestly, that's that's kind of about it. Uh, unless you see uh, maybe some, like, hybrid, like, unless way down the road you can see, like, Jeremiah Robinson Earl maybe becoming a small ball five at times. Uh, but uh, Garuba is the other one. Garuba, I would say. Garuba and Sengun are probably the only other two. I would take in the first round, but maybe Kai. It depends what you would classify Kai as. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Kai. Kai. I'm abnormally high on compared to most people. Me too. But, Me too. Yeah. We will. We will get into Kai Jones very deep on one of these podcasts upcoming. For sure. That's kind of a good transition too. In the, uh, in terms of a lot of these bigs you see now, I think it kind of started with, uh, with shooting. Um, these bigs were starting to be able to space the floor out a bit more. Um, and then you kind of saw them being able to run a little bit, uh, run fast breaks, things like that, uh, handle the ball a bit. Uh, and, and now it's kind of developed into being really great passers and switchers on defense. Um, so we're starting to see centers develop those guard skills as they evolve and, and progress with the game. Um, and I think uh, as we'll get into more on, on later episodes, uh, Mobley and Kai Jones both fit those molds pretty well. Um, and in that instance, I think bigs are worth uh, taking quite quite high in drafts. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and that kind of brings us to the point of unicorn bigs. And, uh, and unicorn bigs are something I kind of flip-flop on sometimes, but I, I tend to lie, land on the high end. Um, unicorn can mean a lot of things, uh, but I tend to I tend to think of it as a a three and D wing or a three and D center, excuse me, who has some wing skills. So so what guys like that uh, do you have your eye on, and how high do you value like the highest levels of guys like that? You know, think of like a Miles Turner or Christoph Porzingis. Yeah, so I think. I guess the way for me I would classify the the new evolution of bigs, if you will, is is bigs with guard skills and then bigs with yeah. wing skills. So like bigs like point four point centers, I guess, and then like wing centers, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I think like Chris Stapps and and Miles Turner almost fit into more of that wing mold in a way, just because they space the floor and they don't really run offenses or anything like that, like a Jokic or a Towns. Um, so, I, but I do think being able to defend at the level, especially like Miles Turner and space the floor, um, those two things, in my opinion, are worth taking pretty high in, in, in a lot of drafts, um, which is why, like, for me, I have Kai Jones fifth this year. Uh, just because he fits kind of into that wing center mold, who I think can switch probably, well, you hope eventually one through five, um, and then space the floor uh, from three. Is That's obviously his high upside ceiling and what you're, you're hoping if you're taking him at five, um, which he won't go that high. But so, and then there's point centers, I think more, uh, like we saw pre-drafted a little bit with Nick Claxton, where he's able to to run the offense a little bit, maybe as like a secondary, tertiary ball handler, um, and a really good stationary passer. Uh, so that's kind of the way I, I decipher um, the two kind of new big archetypes. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I think uh, either either one of those, either a wing, the wing center or the point center, are worth taking pretty high, especially if they're you know already elite or close to elite at those uh, skills. Um, I think like a guy, obviously coming up, uh, going to college is like Chet. He's considered like a unicorn and obviously going to be a really high pick, but um, yeah, I, lo I love those, love those types of archetypes. So um, I, they're always interesting, always intriguing. And there's, there's just so much ceiling and so much potential to, to pass up on them. Yeah. I like the separation of like the wing centers from the point centers, because I think it does make a big difference um in 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 how they function within an offense you know defensively you're kind of hoping for the same things from those guys just at different levels um but you think of like with how popular like dhos are now dribble handoffs uh one of the most popular plays in the nba is a is a high dribble handoff with a center who can move you know it, it makes the pacers a better offense when sabonis has that going uh it's it's honestly the reason the heat can make the finals last year um uh, it's because they have guys who can play that sort of point center role where where they run an offense differently than a than a normal point guard or even like a like a jumbo creator would but having the that ability to pass and to make plays uh is really valuable to where to where i think of more as like the wing centers as like like I mentioned, like a Miles Turner or a Kristaps Porzingis, where for the most part, their goal is to is to spot up or, you know, maybe post up or, or attack a closeout here and there. Yeah. Uh, someone I had, I was really high on last year was Jalen Smith, who definitely falls more into that wing center. Uh, I still have some belief in him. I, I think the Suns are such a weird fit. Um, he was never really going to play this year. Uh, so that's too bad for him, but I still like Jalen Smith because I just value if you can protect the rim and shoot, even if you're like only like mediocre, that's a role in the NBA and it, and it makes team building so much easier. That's why I wanted him on the Pelicans so bad was because it would have been awesome to see Zion have an actual spaced floor because then we'd get to see the, the Zion 80 true shooting. And that's so valuable. And it's, and it's a different type of value than, what like someone like a Mobley is going to bring because Mobley probably will be that more point center where he's running DHOs and probably even initiating some sets kind of like how you started to see the Timberwolves do with Carl Anthony Towns. So, so I like that distinction. Uh, let's, let's move then into how we view three, three point specialists. Cause this is something we've teased in a past podcast. And I think that, there might be some different opinions in here on the importance and the replaceability of that. So Davis, do you want to start with like how replaceable you see a three point specialist as, and what separates the best from the worst three point specialists? So I think just like a, a plain, like, you know, regular three point specialists is they're pretty easy to replace. Cause I feel like a lot of guys, um, most guys actually nowadays can shoot the three um, not at a high level, but you know, at least at least somewhat consistent. Um, really, what separates them is when they when they shoot the three at a high level, and they have other you know skill sets that you want, or and they're you know athletic or a good good uh, good defender, um, good playmaker. Um, so those are the things outside of just the three point that you would like to see. But I feel like um, the ones that just shoot the three are pretty, pretty easy to replace. Kind of like the guys we talked about, like Buddy, Buddy Boheim, um, you know, Quentin Grimes, they, they shoot the three, but that's really, that's really all they bring. Whereas, whereas Joe Harris and, and, you know, guys like that can kind of give you a little more than just the, just the three. So. Devalued a bit because you're, you don't really need guys to space the floor at an elite level when everybody else is getting better at it and can do it at least at a passable rate. So for me, it's like if you're not shooting at a high level and there are guys like that where they're they're cold certain nights, 
it's like, what else do you really bring to a team? What other value do you bring to a team when your shot's not draining? So I think it's an important distinction uh, to distinguish guys between being a three-point specialist and then three-point specialist that can also do other ancillary skills like uh, I think like Kispert or somebody like that. Um, I think I agree with you guys, except for one key difference, and that's shooters who can create their own gravity. So someone like a Duncan Robinson or a JJ Redick have the requisite athleticism and shooting ability to be these elite gravity creators from beyond the arc, even though they don't really dribble. And their efficacy kind of changes from season to season. I think that's that's a, a telltale sign of a player like that, is that, you know, some seasons J.J. Redick was incredibly valuable on the right team, and then sometimes he wasn't. But the right player, I think that that is a value as just a shooter. And that's why I brought up someone like Sean McNeil last week. Uh, comparing to someone else, I almost brought up uh, Hunter Couture from Virginia Tech. Hunter Couture is a very good shooter, uh, probably even a better athlete than McNeil, uh, vertically at least. Um, but he doesn't have the movement or or creation ability as McNeil. And I think that's why McNeil is the more valuable prospect, even if neither of them are really great prospects in general. That being having the ability to be a movement shooter changes the game in such a way and can change the geometry of the floor um, that it, that it makes up for the lack of ancillary skills. Um, but it, it is very hard to, to know that type of player when you're scouting someone like Duncan Robinson, no one scouted him as this elite shooter off movement. He kind of just became that after a year in the G league Um so it, it is a hard thing to scout, but I think that's the one difference is if I if I see something and I think he can be a movement shooter, that gives them a bump over someone like a who can just be a pure shooter. No, yeah, that's definitely a fair argument, I think, uh, and probably a very important distinction to make. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on in terms of uh, shooters or did you want to uh, move on to another archetype that we have? Um, I think we can we can move on. Do you guys want to hit on these sort of bench scores, these uh, microwave guys that get brought up every class as being the next Lou Williams? Or I mean, I mean, how often have we heard that Lou Williams or Jamal Crawford or every yeah, class? There's guys. Mm-hmm, there's four or five. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about the replaceability of those guys, and and what you're looking for that separates a score you really believe in from? Yeah. So I think, <clears throat> I think uh, something for me is, is creation ability. It's a big distinction. I think I look at um, guys that can create their own shot without having to be, having to be dependent upon a primary initiator playing alongside them to be able to generate those shots for them is a big distinction. I think um, if you can generate high efficiency shots then I definitely buy guys like that um, solidly within the first round because despite the fact that there are definitely replaceable guys that you know are scorers that's what they do they come off the bench they get you a bucket and they probably give it up on the other end Um, but if you can get guys that can create for themselves high efficiency high efficiency shots and can do that at a consistent level uh, most nights, I think there, there is value to that. Um, because I, despite a lot of guys being able to score nowadays, I think there's still um, a need, or not necessarily a need, but I think there's still a, a role for a lot of guys that can create shots for themselves that are um, solid looks. because. There's not, there's not many of them, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, something that separates, for me, uh, can tend to be athleticism. Uh, someone I was really high on and, you know, has, has had an up-and-down NBA career, but I, I stand by my original evaluation of him was Malik Monk. Um, 
because I thought this dude is an elite shooter who can dribble and he's also a, a very elite vertical and bursty athlete. Um, and for a lot of people, that's what separated, you know, Grant Riller last year. Grant Riller was someone who got these comparisons. Um, and his first step quickness was something a lot of people brought up as reason for having him. I think I saw him all the way at like 15 for someone. Um, so I, I, I like to see athleticism. And then can you can you do the little things right? Like, it's nice, you know, if someone shoots 33% from three and you're like, oh, they're all tough shots, that can be an okay misnomer. But there are stats out there for how are they on a pure catch and shoot uh, with without a defender within eight feet. If they have a good percentage there and they can take a backseat uh, in certain roles, I think that works a lot. That's why someone like Cam Thomas is still intriguing to me because if you look at his statistical profile, you know, specifically the efficiency, it can kind of make you wince a little bit and wonder, you know, is he anything really, or is he just going to be a tough shot taker, tough shot maker type guy? And those guys have a, you know, a coin tosses chance of being anything. Uh, but he does, he does the easy things, right? He makes spot ups. He, he will Wade doesn't run a good offense, but when he could cut, he finished his cuts. Um, he just took a lot of tough shots too, a lot of isolations, a lot of pits and pick and rolls where he would get blitzed. Um, so I want to see them do the little things right. And then the last thing is size. I think size does matter here. Um, you know, Lou Williams is sort of the outlier as like a six one guy who made it, but I, I like if you're going to be this sort of microwave scorer off the bench, if you can be six five, so you can at least be a, a real body out there, that makes a difference. That's why, you know, I would make an argument that Jordan Clarkson right now is more valuable than Lou Williams was for the majority of his career. It's because even though he's not a good defender, you don't, you won't just attack him one and one and one on one in an ISO every time down the floor because he's big enough and you can kind of stick him on a, a a bad power forward and and live with that while he gives you his offense. Um, what about you, Davis? What what do you like and dislike in these guys, and and how do you value them? Yeah, so I mean, you guys are basically hit the nail on the head with with the with the guards. Um, I like the shot creating. Um, if you can create for yourself, that's a huge plus for me. Uh, whereas if you're just a a catch and shoot guy or um, a guy that can't come off the dribble um, that brings your value down quite a bit. But um, yeah, like a guy, a guy like Jordan Clarkson, mainly, mainly known for, for his scoring and he's not really uh, elite at anything else, but he can at least, you know, hold his own for the most part. Um, and I think, as a guy off the bench, that that's that's very good to have. But yeah, you guys you guys basically said it, so I definitely agree. Yeah, and I think another important factor here is um, maybe being able to be somewhat of a creator. Obviously, these guys aren't relied upon to run offenses. Uh, you have backup point guards, which is kind of another replaceable archetype we can get into, um, but. I think a lot of these guys are relied upon, obviously, for their scoring, but being able to handle the ball more um, and create advantages due to sucking in defenses that, that respect you as a scorer um, and being able to just hit guys off of movement, uh, make some some easy passes, uh, but the, the right ones, the smart ones. Um, I think that's an important distinction as well that kind of separates uh, some of these bench scores for me. I think a thing to keep in mind too with uh, guys like this is it's lots of times it's, it's players who had higher ceilings who underperform uh, and that's not bad. You know, Lou Williams again is, it's sort of the exception to the rule. Um, but think of like a Terrence Ross, you know, Terrence Ross was expected to be like a pretty elite three and D prospect. Who's this awesome athlete, really good shooter uh, and was expected to, to step up and, play some good defense and he and he never quite got there but 
when we talk about these microwave scores, that could someday be like a Jalen Green. And and I'm not trying to put that on him or anything, but you know, as like a 35th percentile outcome for Jalen Green, uh, uh, Terrence Ross is a is a perfect comp for that in my opinion, uh, because lots of times it's guys who get multiple shots and find it's hard to it's hard to be you know picked in the in the fifties and get multiple shots. You're usually only going to get one shot. And if that one shot is is to be Lou Williams or Jamal Crawford, that's that's really hard. That is a that's a tough role to fill. That's why, and similar with the backup point guard thing, and we can kind of tie into this. It's why I sometimes question teams that are so eager to take guards in like the late first and and early second when there's wings on the board, um, because it, it's just always more replaceable to me. Even guards that work out. You know, I'll, I'll take I'll take my lump. I was a little lower on Emmanuel quickly than I should have been, because um, I think he really is very good and has a very a very legit starter skill set. But someone like a Peyton Pritchard, I'm still questioning. You know, it, off the bench, is he just kind of like a shooter who can sometimes have big nights, but you know, only does so much for you? Yeah, I, I think those guys are better taken in like the late forties. Like I think the Warriors did good. They got Nico Mannion at, I want to say like 47 or something like that. Like that's fine. But when you pass on some legit wings for, for guards who fill one of these replaceable archetypes, I think that is a mistake. And I think that kind of takes us to like a less replaceable archetype. And for me, that's like any type of wing, any type of wing, is less replaceable than any type of guard. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Stone, do you want to talk about, you know, larger primaries or these sort of highly coveted three and D guys? Like what are the less replaceable wing archetypes that you value? Yeah. So you kind of hear it all the time, right? Like you can never have enough wings. And I think that does ring true to an extent. Um, There's, saying wings just in general is sort of a broad term because there's so many different types of wings. Um, There's so many different archetypes within that one kind of position. Um, But yeah, what some of the ones I think I value a little bit more highly is, is kind of like those point forward types uh, guys who can run offenses in a pinch um, guys that you don't need to necessarily give the ball handling duties to full time but they can, um, they are capable of being able to, uh, with if there's injuries or, you know, any sort of um, circumstance where they're called upon to, to do that. Um, and then I think also high level defenders is a, just another thing for me. Um, wings we often see are, are probably some of the most versatile defenders just because they have kind of that in between uh, frame and body type that allows them to, uh, in some cases, be able to be quick enough to um, defend guards yet strong enough to defend bigs um, and obviously match up with guys that are similar to their size. Um, So I think those, those two um, skills are probably what I value more in a wing uh, more so than others. Yeah. I would say wings is it's a very broad category, but I, I think it's worthwhile because a lot of players can fit into it. And I think they're all, they all provide some sort of value. Uh, any 6'5 guy, 6'5 to like 6'9 guy who can run an offense is obviously should be prioritized. I think the examples of guys like this who have fallen, you know, like a like a Kyle Anderson are pretty rare. But even like that, you know, Kyle Anderson is still a super valuable player. Uh, one of the more underrated two-way players in the league at this point. Um. Okay, go ahead, Davis. Yeah, so with wings, uh, I think, I mean, Stone, Stone nailed a lot of the, the key things, but um, I like wings a lot just due to the, the fact uh, they're usually have, have a good, like, frame, good size, which is already a good, good value, a good trait to have. And most of them are either an elite defender, which is obviously very good, or they're, an elite shooter, elite creator, um, 
and just if they're an elite shooter, their size, their and their you know speed, their just their archetype in general uh, makes it makes it more valuable. Whereas just you know a, a six foot guard is just a an elite shooter. Um, but yeah, I I agree with Stone. He was talking about how you know wing is a very broad category and hard to categorize categorize and i would agree and i think um specifically touching on the defense uh wing defense is something that's so valuable because but especially later in the draft it feels like every year there's these guys that slip through the cracks and fall down into the draft and you're just like why you know for me last year and he hasn't got a chance to prove it yet but i think he will long term a guy like malik Fitz went undrafted and I was like, this is a 6'8 guy who can drive and shoot, and, he, and he's strong. I, I don't get why he went undrafted. You know, in the past, guys like Dylan Brooks uh, fell deep into the second round. That's a wing with value. You know, he might frustrate Grizzlies fans, and I get it, but I, I, I think it's because he's empowered to do more than he probably should be. If he were to just step back into a 3 and D role, that's a really useful, valuable player next to John Morant. And uh, so, so I think the wings are so important and the prime example of irreplaceability, even, even, even the archetypes we see as replaceable or maybe even less valuable, like three and D how many teams every year at the trade deadline are we saying, Oh, they could really use a three and D wing six, six teams a year need that. So if you can just draft bets on that one or two work out to be high level guys and one or two are solid bench guys, you know, that goes a long way. And I think it's why, you know, I still give the Celtics a ton of latitude despite Danny Ainge's issues is because they've proven so willing to draft and develop wings. And sometimes you have to be patient. Wings can take probably the longest to develop of any position. Uh, and lots of times they end up having to play a smaller role early on before expanding always bring up the Kawhi or Jason Tatum examples of they did well to be on competing teams early where they had a specific role, whether it be as a spot up shooter and occasional driver for Jason Tatum or a defensive stopper for Kawhi. But then slowly in the background, they developed to do more and more and expanded their game. It's why I still believe very deeply in OG Ananobi and like McCall Bridges as guys who will continue to develop because wings just do that. They're so valuable and they're absolutely irreplaceable on every team. Yeah, I, I agree pretty much with all that, honestly. I think that was a really good summary of um, how we, how we at least on this podcast, kind of view wings. Um, and within wings, within that broader category, uh, lies kind of another argument, I think, in athleticism versus IQ. Uh, this is a debate I think uh, a lot of draft evaluators have, along with the next question we'll ask after this, but um, athleticism versus IQ, where do you guys kind of fall on that? Is there one you favor over the other or are they kind of situational or um, is there situations where you think one uh, is more important than the other? I mean, I would always say it's somewhat situational, but I, I probably tend to land on the side of athleticism, specifically with wings. Um, you, were, you know, we were talking about this in the context of wings first and foremost. And I all, I'll always side with athleticism because feel can come, especially with reps. And if there's one position in basketball that young players are very likely to get reps, it's at the wing. Because sometimes teams are just short there or someone gets injured a lot easier at the wing. So you're likely to get reps and develop that IQ. And that's how I feel with, you know, we don't want to make this too much about prospects in this draft. But like Jonathan Kaminga started to fall down draft boards for a ton of people on draft Twitter. And I just, I just don't necessarily get it because I think his athleticism is still so special. And he's, he's had a really specific developmental context that we'll get into later but just the flashes of iq and feel he had are so are, are enough for me 
to bet on that elite athleticism that he can be a good defender and a good slasher the next level um so i would say i tend to lead towards athleticism but if you can have a mix of the two it's you know perfect i just agreeing with you getting a blend of both is kind of the ideal yeah i agree definitely want to look for both of you look for them to have both but i feel like yeah with wings you you would like the athleticism but i feel like with the with the point guard or with the guard you might prefer the iq um it's kind of like i don't know like russell westbrook versus like a steph curry it's not that steph isn't athletic um but he doesn't obviously have the athleticism that russell westbrook has um but yeah it's i think it's just a situational a situational thing so that's good because i think that creates dialogue because I feel like all three of us have different perspectives because me personally, um, I think I tend to lean uh, IQ over the athleticism in most instant, most instances. Uh, if that's kind of the deciding factor between two people, I'll generally always go with the IQ side uh, because I think we see time and time and again that the, the higher level players or the best players generally most of the time Although they, a lot of them do possess a high-level athleticism, and that's kind of what makes them elite, right, is that, that blend of both. Um, but I think a lot of times, the, even those really athletic guys, uh, they're also really smart basketball players. Um, like we see with Luca, he's probably one of the smartest, I think, players currently. Um, Jokic obviously is, is phenomenal at reading defenses. Um, there's just a lot of players I think that get to that level because of the IQ that they possess. Um, and that's not to say that if you don't have IQ, you're not going to be elite or anything like that. Um, because I do believe there's also really smart players that are just role players. Um, and they get, they get in a rotation, uh, because they do everything right. Um, there's guys you see, like maybe like a Kenrich Williams on the thunder right now, who's producing at a pretty solid rate from a night to night basis. And just because he does a bit of everything and he does it all well because of his IQ, he's really good at um, just kind of being aware of his surroundings, uh, making the right decisions. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Whereas I think um, not to knock down guys with athleticism, uh, but I think a lot of times athleticism guys, or tend to be perceived a little bit raw uh, coming out, especially like one and duns, maybe. Um, some of them can be unpolished and, you know, maybe there's guys, uh, someone that comes to mind maybe is like a, a Hamidou Diallo, at least early in his career, as a guy who just basically relied on athleticism, right? Like as a basketball player, you're questioning a lot of things, but he's on the court because the athleticism leads to some advantages here and there. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of what leads me to to lean with uh, athleticism in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting value discussion depending on where you're looking at the league, and I, and I think lots of times it's going to depend on fit because every team needs a blend of both, not just a player. You know, the best players have both. Um, usually, I guess Jokic might be the exception to that. Um, but the best players tend to have both. You know, you think of like LeBron James is a one-of-one one athlete, but also a one-of-one one basketball mind. Or even Kawhi kind of came into the league with questionable feel, and, and he still, you know, it took him a long time to develop as a passer and playmaker, which which tends to be a sign of IQ. Um, but he was so physically imposing, and he knew angles. He had solid feel. And separating feel from IQ is very tough, and that's a, that's a separate pod. Uh, Evan Zaucha talks a ton about that, writes, wrote an excellent piece on that. Um, but anyways, to me, just betting specifically at the top of the draft, it's easier to bet on athleticism because I think IQ and feel develop easier with reps. And, and not, to, not that you can ever develop someone to see the game like LeBron James or Luka Doncic. Like, those guys are 
wizards. They're basketball geniuses. Draymond Green, too. Draymond Green might be my favorite example. Like, you can't develop someone to think like that, but you also can't... It, I think it's easier to develop someone to... You know, I would say Harrison Barnes is a good example of someone who was super low feel coming into the draft, but has developed into a solid, like, he knows where to be on defense. He can make the right pass. And I, I think he's a really valuable player at this point. I think that's easier to bet on than this guy who I just don't know if he's athletic enough figuring that part out. That's why I think I come down lower on uh, a couple of guys in this draft, Josh Giddy and Daisha Nix, than you two and, and the majority, or at least Stone, and the majority of uh, draft Twitter is because those are two guys who are uber elite IQ guys, um, specifically Giddy. Uh, but I just don't know if they can create advantages at all at the next level. And to me, as an offensive player, it's all about creating advantages. Um, so that, that, that's where I come down on it. Uh, but there, but there are levels to it. You know, you do want like with certain players, you do want more IQ. We talked about like Buddy Beheim versus Quentin Grimes, and we all ended up saying we like Beheim better because in that specific archetype of a player, we liked his IQ more than Grimes's more athleticism. So I think I think it does depend, but I tend to fall more on the IQ specifically higher in the or on the athleticism specifically higher in the draft. Yeah, uh, you mentioned those two guys. I think. The, the it's a difference in advantage creation right like with with athletic guys obviously you're using that athleticism that speed maybe or that um that fast uh burst or something off the dribble to create those advantage plays maybe like a davion mitchell or someone like that um who's able to create advantages just based purely off his uh, off of his athleticism um whereas guys like like Giddy or someone like that is able to create advantages uh, just to due to his process of processing of the game and his IQ uh, knowing how to use his teammates is something that I think is very valuable. Um, being able to, to learn how to read to come off of screens, how to use those screens effectively and efficiently and get passes to where they need to be um, is something that I think does create advantages. It's just kind of in a different way. Yeah, I, I understand that. I'm not trying to say they can't ever like create advantages because some guys make that work. You know, Joe yeah. Ingles plays for my favorite team, and he's perhaps the the greatest example I know of for that. As like a dude who, for the longest time, he's become one this year, but for the longest time was not like a pull up threat and wasn't a an elite athlete, but still managed to figure it out, get all the way to the rim. Or, you know, a guy who didn't quite make it, but I still think probably could have, if not for injuries, like Milos Teodosic was excellent at that. Um, but I, I just think it's different, and the margin for error there is much less. Like, if you're just a little bit, you know, too loose with your handle, you can't do Like, you're just not an NBA player. If, if you're just that 5% too slow, even, you know, like – even like the slowest guys like tend to deal with injury or, or aging a lot harder than the most athletic sometimes because losing 5% of your quickness when you're already in the bottom 5% of quickness in the league goes from creating the, the most minimal windows of advantage to no advantage at all. So I, I think that's where I come down on it. But there, there are certain places where IQ really matters. Like uh, Davis mentioned, like specifically if I'm looking for backup point guards, like that's why I love Malachi Flynn so much. And I, I don't even see him as a backup. I see him as a future starter. Um, but his IQ was so overwhelming and his ability to run and pick a, a pick and roll was incredible that I bought him even with his subpar athleticism and size. So there, there are definitely levels to it. But I, I think... Athleticism in multiple forms, I tend to fall down more on, and in multiple by in multiple forms, I mean like like Poku was someone I was high on for his 
athleticism, even though it's not like he's like this amazing run jump athlete, but he was the smoothest seven footer I've ever seen play until Evan Mobley this year. So athleticism, just like IQ can come in different packages, but I tend to view athleticism as the more important trait in like a top prospect later on in the draft. It can depend. Um, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, I think also something that kind of is relevant to the topic, I think is team fit. Like you see teams like San Antonio, uh, that, that take full advantage of guys with those IQs, um, and are able to make the most of them. So I think, uh, there's there's certain teams or maybe Miami as well, though that there's just more of a work ethic thing with development. But um, there's certain teams that are able to get the most specifically with high IQ guys. Um, so I think that does play a little bit of a part as well. Uh, the last question I think relevant to this topic is um, with with athletic guys versus IQ guys. Uh, and we kind of talked about this a little bit already, so we can just be pretty quick with it. Is um is there one versus the other where you view like athletic guys? Do you view them as having maybe a higher ceiling but a lower floor, or IQ guys having maybe a little bit of a higher ceiling or a lower ceiling but a higher floor, or is it all kind of dependent on the prospect? Uh, yeah, I I kind of think um, IQ guys uh, a lower floor. Like I think I think IQ guys. Have a, have a better chance of just being a, a role player in the league, whereas, like, athletic guy, you can take high and, and be, like, a complete bust or, you know, something like that. Um, but I think athletic guys do have more of a higher ceiling. They could be that that uh, that superstar level um, if they do develop the IQ, whereas I feel like if you just have kind of IQ and not really the athleticism, it's you won't really be that that superstar um but you won't really be like out of the league or you know anything like that so i do i do think i do think athletic athletic prospects have a higher ceiling there are times i actually think athletic prospects could have the higher floor too and maybe i'm in the minority on that but like like someone like a kai jones um who who I wouldn't say is low IQ or anything, but he definitely his feel is still developing. He he hasn't quite got a handle on defensive rotations and passing yet. But I still love him because his athleticism and mix of tools gives him so many paths to success. Someone at six eleven who moves like that could be a and shoots like he does could be a four or he could be a five, like he could he could fill so many different roles that i that athleticism grants him and sometimes iq guys don't always have that you know like joe ingles and i i i'm bringing up the same guy again but joe ingles can only be what joe ingles is that's that's his whole that's his one path and to me when you only have one path to making it to me that tends to usually mean the lower floor i i think a lot of people think you know, lower floor is just like if this guy never learns how to play basketball. But I think it becomes less and less true as, as time goes on. I think we're getting to a point where basketball is so prevalent at lower levels that low field guys can still like figure it out enough that their athleticism gets to gets to stand. And I think there's plenty of examples like that and there will continue to be um that's why i'm still high on jonathan kaminga and and i'm super high on kai jones because those guys with their athleticism they're they have so many paths to success you know as as elite defenders or switching bigs or whatever slashers i still think i would argue kai jones has the highest ceiling in the class but i also think that his floor is not that low because at the very worst he is a bench switchable center with some shooting equity and, and a excellent role guy. So that's, I, I, I think athleticism grants a higher floor than we tend to give it credit for because we think so much of, Oh, IQ equals high floor, low ceiling. All right. So we had a little bit more technical difficulties. Hopefully that's the last of them. 
Uh, but let's get right back into our final topic, which was fit versus best player available. Um, this is kind of an age-old debate that draft evaluators have had for since the age of time. So uh, where do you guys fall on this, on this debate? Um, I'm pretty staunchly in the BPA, but I, I will say that I'm okay drafting for fit within a tier. I, I break my draft down into, into very specific tiers. I'm sure we'll go through that when we do another philosophy pod or a big board pod. Um, and I'm okay taking the guy that's best for your team within that tier because I will say if you have too much redundant talent, it tends to reduce that talent's upside because, you know, as much as LaMelo Ball should have been taken by the Warriors, him being taken by the Hornets was the best thing for his career because he got those reps as a point guard to run the offense immediately and to figure himself out. And he went through those ups and downs and I'm okay with that for the right team. Um, so I think drafting within a tier, you can take the best fit who you think you're going to have the best chance to develop, but I'm very against drafting for fit outside of a tier. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I, I think uh, I lean towards best player available um, majority of the time. I think maybe like a like a like a championship team or you know close to that picking like thirty you know around there might need like you know like a, a like a shot blocker or something like that and I think you might then take it for fit but um, majority of the time I'm I'm going best player available for for really any team or almost any situation. Yeah, so for me, I'm pretty much with you guys on this. I think best player available is is generally the way to go. Um, I, I do think there are some rare instances where fit is necessary at times, um, specifically for more, more uh, win-now type teams. I think uh, there's teams that, you know, say, for example, like the Nets, just hypothetically, if they were drafting kind of in the middle of the first I would prioritize uh, a big, most likely, or or at least a guy who's a really strong rebounder or, or in defender, um, because they are in a win now situation, and any sort of asset that you can get to help push uh, push that, um, I think is beneficial for them. Uh, but in most instances, since generally the teams drafting up high are in sort of a rebuild mode and asset uh, allocation mode, I feel like best player available is the way to go. And you kind of just figure out those lineups or log jams um, as you go along. Yeah. I will say the one time fit does matter to me if you're picking high is if you either have like a proven small guard as your main initiator or like a traditional big. I, I don't think drafting two bigs makes any sense because it's just not one of them is just not going to have the time to develop. It's why as much as I respect the Sixers for doing all they did, you know, and obviously it worked out for them to get Joel Embiid. I, I, I think they should have done better to just not draft three straight bigs because it, it messes with the amount of playing time they can get and stuff like that. And I also think a team like, like the Hawks or, or now the Grizzlies uh, with John Morant, who have like small guards that you know are going to be the centerpieces for the next 10 years. Uh, I don't think it would make sense to draft a small guard next to them. You know, if like, if the Hawks would have drafted like Darius Garland with that fourth, fourth pick instead of DeAndre Hunter, because he was higher on their board, that still wouldn't have made any sense to me because you know Trey Young is that dude. And, he, and he's going to be that guy for you for the next decade plus. Um, that betting against that or or picking a player who can't play with him doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and then I think, yeah, I think the final kind of point I would make for, for me at least is that there's teams maybe like, say say for example, the Magic end up with the third pick this year. They already have Hampton, Cole Anthony, Markel Fultz. Um, so if, if you buy into any of those guys, 
I guess this, this is more of a question than a statement. If you buy into any of those guys for the future, do you take Jalen Suggs if he's third on your board? Or do you kind of hope those guys develop and try to not take away any sort of developmental playing time that they might need? Yeah, I think it's a it's a tough it that would be a tough situation for the Magic just because uh they already kind of paid Fultz a lot of money. Um but I mean I would probably still take still take Suggs, but um I, I guess I wouldn't be mad if they went if they went off fit. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I only bring this up because I do feel like there's situations where this does happen where teams are already kind of in a rebuild mode and they already sort of have a log jam of young guys at a certain role or position and where they end up is like the prime spot for another guy to fill that same exact role or position, but that's the highest guy or the best guy left available. Uh, so I, I do feel like this sort of happened uh, from time to time. You see it with the Cavs too, like with Garland and Sexton. So I, I will say that I think I would still take Suggs. I don't have Suggs third on my board. He wouldn't be that pick. But uh, but assuming with the scenario, you believe in all three of those guys, but also Suggs is your top guy, I would because of where the Magic are at in this rebuild. Um, none of those guys, to me, have proven that they're, like, the next piece for the franchise. You know, I think the time to start thinking about fit, you know, out outside of tiers is uh is if you have like i said like a trade like if one of those guys was like if markel fultz was already an all-star and you just had a bad team this season and you got some some lottery luck and you ended up there but you know markel fultz is like your primary of the future then maybe you think about it though i do think jalen Suggs can is probably going to be more of a two or a, a secondary initiator at the next level Cole Anthony has shown some flashes. He could also very well be, you know, a mediocre, inefficient bench scorer long-term. Uh, I, I loved RJ Hampton in the draft. Um, he, he could completely bust out if he doesn't, you know, put the scoring package together and, and become a true primary initiator. Um, and if you think Jalen Suggs is that guy on your board, being so early into this rebuild, I think you need to bet on that. Um, you need to just bet on your board at the very beginning of a rebuild. Then I think you can start to think more for fit. Like that's how, that's how I was with the Hawks. I was thinking the whole time, well, if they get the first pick, maybe they shouldn't take LaMelo ball because even though LaMelo ball is bigger to me, he's still the primary. He's who you want him to have the ball all the time, but that's who Trey young is. So then you kind of think more for fit, but. I think for the magic, I would take Jalen sucks. Yeah. For me, that's this sort of hypothetical, at least is sort of the only um, time where I really question fit versus the BPA discussion, because if you're already in a young asset allocation mode and let's say you do buy into one of those three guys as your future guard, how do you, how do you, that's just a weird dichotomy to me because do you move forward with two future guards and hope they don't kind of overlap too much or butt heads or do you just hope the guy that's in the next the top of your next year is able to fill a position at a higher level than you expected uh, so just kind of food for thought it's something uh, I struggle with at least still uh, at this point um, but if, is there anything else you guys want to touch on? I know we've run for a long time here. So if you guys are still listening, we appreciate you sticking around this long. Yeah, uh, just this was this was fun. This was uh, I think we're starting to hit our our stride a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are uh, enjoying recording it, uh, because this is this is the type of stuff I think the three of us really love about the draft is is we had some difference of opinions and some some disagreements but we had a discussion and it was it was a really fun one um davis why don't you tell the people where they can find you so you can find me at sports by davis on twitter uh instagram that's once again that's at sports by davis 
Uh, and then you could find me at report underscore court on Twitter. Uh, and then I update mock drafts for lines.com. And if you feel, want to feel free to uh, drop a follow for at upside swings on Twitter. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It helps us a lot. And we appreciate any feedback. Uh, you can also send that feedback or any questions to upside swings at gmail.com. Yeah, I'm uh, Bryce Hendrick 14 on Twitter. Uh, all my work's on Roll Call Sports. And uh, we hope that.